I think what I admire most in a really good script is its tightness. There's almost a kind of haiku quality to it. Writing a screenplay to me is, is not really writing at all. You're putting up the scaffolding for a building that someone else is going to make. Film lives in image. Books live in this description of life. And a film's going to shoot that. It's not going to tell you that. It's going to shoot it. You're going to see it. You're never going to get the book, so quit asking for the book. The book is the book. The movie is a completely different animal. The best novels almost inevitably become movies, but how do writers and filmmakers go from the page to the screen without losing all those qualities that made a novel great in the first place? I'm David Darcy. Just ahead, Independent Minds looks at the journey of Richard Russo and his novel Empire Falls through that filmmaking process with Paul Newman, Helen Hunt, Philip Seymour Hoffman, John Irving, and Russell Banks. Stay with us. The novelist Richard Russo has now had two of his books put on the screen. In the last decade, as that's happened, he's become more and more involved in that process. He writes novels that filmmakers find cinematic. He also writes screenplays, most recently as the screenwriter of the adaptation of his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Empire Falls. We'll hear from Russo, and we'll also hear how novelists view the complicated interplay between books and movies. In this edition of Independent Minds, Richard Russo's journey in that passage from page to screen. Empire Falls is Richard Russo's fifth novel. It's been a critical and commercial success. It also won a Pulitzer Prize and has been made into a new miniseries by HBO Films scheduled to air for two nights over Memorial Day weekend. Russo set Empire Falls in a main river town that's seen better days, as seen through the eyes of two families, one rich, one far from rich. Russo built the novel that shifts back and forth in time around a central, conflicted character. Usually with a, uh, a novel, I start with a character that I'm interested in who's got some sort of problem that I don't know the solution to. That's when I know that I've got something. So in this case, I started off with a character who would become Miles Roby. I knew that he was middle-aged, and I knew that he had a wife who was divorcing him. And I knew that he had a daughter that he loved beyond measure. And I knew that he was trapped in a town and trapped in some kind of interesting ways, trapped in some ways by his own inertia and trapped by his sense of loyalty to his deceased mother, trapped by the fact that he will not under any circumstance leave his daughter, and trapped by a particularly malicious old woman. And that's generally enough to begin a novel, is to have a character that you care about, somebody that you like a lot, who's in a situation that if you say to yourself, boy, what would I do if I were in his situation? And the answer to that is, I have no idea. Then you're, you're kind of off to the races. The Empire Grill was long and low-slung, with windows that ran its entire length. And since the building next door, a Rexall drugstore, had been condemned and razed, it was now possible to sit at the lunch counter and see straight down Empire Avenue all the way to the old textile mill and its adjacent shirt factory. Both had been abandoned now for the better part of two decades, though their dark, looming shapes at the foot of the avenue's gentle incline continued to draw the eye. 
Of course, nothing prevented a person from looking up Empire Avenue in the other direction, but Miles Roby, the proprietor of the restaurant, and its eventual owner, he hoped, had long noted that his customers rarely did. No, their natural preference was to gaze down to where the street both literally and figuratively dead-ended at the mill and factory, the undeniable physical embodiment of the town's past. And it was the magnetic quality of the old abandoned structures that steeled Miles's resolve to sell the Empire Grill for what little it would bring just as soon as the restaurant was his. With the novel's success, Empire Falls now has a life beyond the page as a new film written by Russo himself. Mrs. Whiting says you've been calling her again. What for not? We're related, her and me. The Robies and the Robidos are the same family if you go back far enough. You wish. You should let me help you paint that church. I was a house painter for 40 years, you know. You keep forgetting, Dad. I'm painting the church for free. That don't mean you can't pay me. Yeah, it does, Dad. That's precisely what it means. How am I supposed to get down to the Keys with no money? I always managed when I was a kid. You've disappeared every winter. That's where the money was. How come we never saw any of it? Paid me to paint that church, I wouldn't have to feel worthless. I know law that says old people gotta feel worthless. If you paid me, I might have some dignity. The dignity ship sailed years ago, Dad. Decades. Paul Newman and Ed Harris in a scene from Empire Falls. It's almost inevitable that a novel awarded with praise and prizes will be adapted for the screen, but it's not at all inevitable that a novelist like Richard Russo would be able to play such a role in filming it, or that he would take that role so seriously. This was a story that he'd spent almost 10 years on. He had a decade of emotions invested in these characters. Burdens and and dreams, I mean, not that burdens and dreams are necessarily mutually exclusive, but that these things were going to be passed down uh, as a kind of weight and uh, to understand all of these characters, including the villains, you were going to have to understand the weight that they carried. Ever since the movie industry became associated with the most beautiful women, the biggest checks, and the biggest audiences, novelists have set their eyes on the moving image. But Hollywood is as much of a mirage for novelists as it is for everyone else, says Robert Benton, the veteran screenwriter and director who's collaborated with Russo on movies for a decade. Benton says that as novelists go, Richard Russo entered the movies at an advantage. Richard has an astounding ear for dialogue and an ear for dialogue that translates into film. There are other writers who have a extraordinary sense of dialogue, but it is more stylized and more abstract. It doesn't step across that gap into the naturalness that's demanded out of movies. And Richard also writes great characters. Like it or not, in the film industry, fresh ideas for stories are scarce and therefore all the more coveted. And novels are a place where these ideas always seem to turn up. Hollywood needs them as much as novelists think they need Hollywood or the studio's promise of a better paycheck for less work. David Thompson is author of the Biographical Dictionary of Film. They turn to books because they're afraid of originality, because they don't trust it, and they don't have it very well developed in their own brains. And, you know, they're just not confident 
about inventing stories, and I think it's much to the discredit of the movies that they rely so heavily upon the literary forms that they claim to have surpassed. And it's because they think that people have heard of books that have been published and plays that have been performed and things like that. I don't think that's really true very often. The film business there is waiting to pounce on success. But the success usually takes the form of does the book sell well? Was there a very good coverage on it? Is there a star who would like to play the lead? Rather than I went home last night and I couldn't put the book down. I mean, never forget that David Selznick bought Gone with the Wind without benefit of having read it. He'd been told that it could make a great film. Word of mouth affected him much more than the hours that it would have taken him to read the book because he didn't really have time to read the book. Now, that's a very telling story about the film business. Unlike the novelists who fled Greenwich Village and Broadway for the brand-new talking movies of Hollywood during the golden age of the 1930s, Richard Russo is a writer who's lived his entire life in the age of motion pictures. He didn't set out to make movies, but he couldn't escape them and never tried. I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, and Saturday afternoons were in their own way from the time I was old enough to go by myself, and really before that, because my mother used to take me to, uh, to matinees at the old uh, Glove Theater in Gloversville, New York, where I grew up. Weekends were kind of sacred times because, of course, there was mass on Sunday and uh, and confession on uh, late Saturday afternoon. So there was that religious dimension to the weekend. But when I look back at it now, I think of Saturday afternoons where virtually every Saturday afternoon from the time that I was a kid was spent in the old Glove Theater watching movies. And Russo wasn't alone. From his childhood days, the novelist John Updike also felt the seductive influence of film. I spent a lot of time in the dream factory, as it were. I used to go, uh, I, even, I even delivered uh, movie circulars around so I could have a free pass and see every movie that Hollywood produced. So uh, the movies were the TV of my generation. For Richard Russo, movies were fun, but novels were his vocation. He had already published two novels before Nobody's Fool became a commercial success. The critics had always liked him, but things changed when Nobody's Fool got attention from a Hollywood producer and also from Paul Newman, who brought in the director and screenwriter Robert Benton. Benton had begun his career as the co-writer of Bonnie and Clyde. As he adapted Nobody's Fool into a screenplay, he found a novel and a novelist that were cinematic. There are certain novelists who are extraordinary, but the critical element that's the key to their work is not filmable. It's a prose style. It's an interior voice. They make extraordinary books, but they can't step across that gulf into film. And Richard's genius is that he writes characters that I find mesmerizing, and what he writes can be filmed. The hero of Richard Russo's novel, Nobody's Fool, and of the movie directed by Robert Benton, is a small-town character played by Paul Newman who seems to have failed at everything in life. Well, it's been a while. Three years. 
which is supposed to be working at teaching. What's that school? University of West Virginia. Oh, yeah. What brings you guys this far north? Vera, welcome to the Thanksgiving from hell. Damn it, Charlotte, if we're going to start the weekend like this. Uh, Vera, how is she, anyways? I don't think I've seen her since the last time you guys were up here. Well, now, how can you live in a town this size and not see your ex-wife all the time? That's easy, Dolly. And Peter's mom and I don't exactly travel in the same circles. As a matter of fact, Vera pretty much travels in a straight line. Somebody in this family had to. Who are you? He's your grandfather. Does he always look like that? Yeah, most of the time. Over the course of the production of Nobody's Fool, Richard Russo himself became a collaborator with Robert Benton on the script. Benton had done, I thought, a marvelous job of taking a good half to two-thirds of that novel, discovering what the most important through lines of the story were, taking a lot of subplots and getting a story that could be told that captured the texture and the flavor of that novel and its central character and that character's central dilemma and turning it into what I still think is just a marvelous, marvelous movie. And when they went into rehearsal, he thought that that some of the scenes that he had written that were essentially bridge scenes that were necessitated by what he had taken out of the novel, some of those sounded more like him than they did me. And he thought, well, let's call Richard here and see if he could rewrite two or three of these scenes. And when Paul Newman asked you if you'd like to do something, there's only one right answer to that. And, and so I said, sure, and went back home and I kind of winged my way through it. And I would talk with Benton at the end of the shoot and I would fax the pages to him and he would say, this is wonderful. And then he would show me what on the page he could actually use. And it was a line of dialogue here or there. And he would show me, all right, now we've, we've done this up here, so we don't need to do it here. And he'd rearrange it. And, and, and as we talked every night, I began to get a sense of what gets done and how it gets done. And I started off with a commission to rewrite, I think, three or four scenes. And I continued to write on the picture you know, throughout the entire movie. Telling a story in moving pictures while preserving an author's voice and an author's characters was the challenge of making a film of Empire Falls. Fred Skepsi directed the miniseries by HBO Films. It should be noted here that HBO Films is an underwriter for this program. It's uh, knowing what to leave out and probably the more difficult part, what to reinvent or represent so that you actually put across what the book is but as a film you can't you know do a literal translation obviously but you've got to find ways uh, of presenting the story that is true to the spirit of the book but as a film obviously to get nobody's fool made it didn't hurt to have paul newman as executive producer and a cast that included bruce willis jessica tandy and paul newman can i interest you in a cup of tea nope not now not ever why are you wearing a necktie? You're not in trouble with the police again, are you? Not unless you blew the whistle on all my parking tickets. I sure, there's probably a reward. <sighs> Before they do throw you in the hooskow, would you mind fixing the porch railing? It's been broken for a month. Sure thing, old girl. Just don't forget. Do I ever? Yes. Well, I won't this time. That experience of making Nobody's Fool with Robert Benton and Paul Newman turned Richard Russo into a different kind of writer. The once solitary novelist discovered that he liked collaboration. Writing novels is kind of a lonely business. 
it takes you, it takes me anyway, four or five years to find my way through them. And during that time, I'm generally, you know, not talking about what I'm doing with anybody. And uh, screenwriting is so collaborative. And when you like the people that you're working with, and I, you know, I came in, as I said, through the back door, but also at the very highest end of movie making with a legendary producer, an Academy Award winning screenwriter and director and a film icon in Paul Newman. And it was fun. And also I discovered, for me, writing screenplays is a little bit like cheating because what I do best is write dialogue anyway. And writing screenplays means that the things in novel writing that come to me the hardest that I have to spend the most amount of time on, writing graceful sentences, spending time in characters' heads and explaining what they're thinking. In writing screenplays, if you can write dialogue, you get to skip all that other hard, what, it, what is for me hard stuff. Writers rarely have it so good when they get involved in movies. When a novel's optioned for a film, producers have carte blanche to change it. So does the director. Rarely does the novelist have a say in that. If he's there at all, he's one of many voices. Elmore Leonard has now finished his 40th novel. He's probably had more books adapted for the screen than any living writer. He's also written screenplays. Leonard's short story from the 1950s, 310 to Yuma, was turned into a Hollywood Western that's been called a masterpiece. Need two volunteers. Do I have two volunteers? For what? I'm not telling you for what. I want two of you to set off with Dave Keene. The rest of us will follow with the prisoner in the coach. Do I have two volunteers? We got to know what we're getting ourselves into. Sure. Might not be safe. Safe? Who knows what's safe? I know a man dropped dead from looking at his wife. My own grandmother fought the Indians for 60 years, then choked to death on lemon pie. Do I have two volunteers? By all accounts, 310 to Yuma was a well-made film adapted from a well-crafted story. And the pay in movies was a lot better than the going magazine rate for stories those days, two cents a word. But Elmore Leonard's experience with films have been ups and downs. I've been active in Hollywood, and I've written a lot of movies, but I quit. I didn't, never got any pleasure out of it. I never got any fun. It was just work. And on the other hand, books have always been fun. I've, I've made it fun. The way I write them and, the, and uh, what I write about is always fun for me. Leonard stopped writing movies when he no longer needed to. That didn't keep his books from being adapted. Quentin Tarantino made Jackie Brown from Leonard's novel, Rum Punch. Okay, the envelope contains $50,000. I've counted it, and I'm now marking the bills in the upper left-hand corner and the second zero with the green felt tip pen. Ever been tempted? What? Put one of these in my pocket? Mm-hmm. If I did, I'd have to give one to you, wouldn't I? <laughs> of course, nobody knows how much there is. Guess we could take as much as we want. Isn't that right? Yes, all those things are true. Quentin Tarantino's adaptation of the novel Jackie Brown was an homage to the author, but Elmore Leonard thought that the latest screen version of his book, The Big Bounce, was anything but. It originally came out in 69. I saw it then in uh, New York. I got in a little bit late, 
And the woman in front of me about 15, 20 minutes later said to her husband, this is the worst movie I ever saw because it made no sense. And the three of us got up and left. Novelists have gotten used to movie versions of their books making no sense. Coming up, we'll see how one of the blockbuster novels of the 1980s became one of the signature screen debacles of the 1990s. I'm David Darcy. This is Independent Minds. This is Independent Minds. Bonfire of the Vanities was Tom Wolfe's satirical novel of greed and opportunism in 1980s Manhattan. As a film, it was a perplexing $50 million spectacle, back when $50 million was a lot for a movie. Maria, you are incorrigible. (laughs) Am I? Now, look, I I suppose we could still go to the police. We could get ourselves a very talented lawyer. And put our heads right into the tiger's mouth? I'm the one who's driving the car, Sherman. Don't you think I'm the one who should make that decision? And I say no. I say no, Sherman. Trust me. Nothing is going to come of that little newspaper article. Absolutely nothing. Julie Solomon wrote Devil's Candy, a book that followed the bonfire of the vanities from a blockbuster novel to a studio movie that went way over budget and lost money. Tom Wolfe had no role in the film or in its script. I think for a lot of people, like Tom Wolfe, you know, they take a pragmatic approach to it. This is a way that I can finance my book career. And, you know, there are very few people who are good in both medium. There are some people who are and power to them. I think it's great, but I think that's pretty rare. So I think Tom Wolfe probably had a good idea when he just took the money, cashed the check, and watched. Literary frustrations with the movie business are a fact of life. William Faulkner and F. Scott Fitzgerald both chafed against Hollywood. So did Rick Moody when his first novel, Garden State, was adapted against his will into a commercial hit last year. Oh, man, how you doing? I'm, I'm great. Your mom just died. I know. I mean, that's why you're home. Yeah, yep. Still, Rick Moody's experiences with movies made from his books haven't been all bad. The Ice Storm, made by Ang Lee from that novel about children and their parents in suburban Connecticut in the 1970s, is held up as a successful adaptation, even by Rick Moody. I mean, what's not to love? First-rate cast, great ensemble piece, and there's a real 
tonal melancholy that I think captures some of what the book was after. So even though there are a lot of changes, they were fast and loose with narrative time with respect to the book. That never bothered me because all I wanted was to be involved with a movie that was a quality piece of cinema, you know, because I felt that that would ultimately reflect well on the book and ensure that the book had a long life. The guy talks nonstop throughout the entirety of the miserable 18 holes on topics that are the supposed domain of my department. Yeah? You're boring me. I have a husband. I don't particularly feel the need for another. You have a point there. That's a very good point. We're having an affair. Right. An explicitly sexual relationship. Your needs, my needs. You're absolutely right. You better get dressed. The boys will be home soon. Gotcha. The script for The Ice Storm was by James Seamus, who was also a producer of the film. One of the reasons we chose to work on The Ice Storm was precisely because it seemed impossible to do. It's a very literary novel. It has almost no reported dialogue in it. So it's really told in a very idiosyncratic and particular voice. James Seamus adapted The Ice Storm without Rick Moody's help. But some novelists stay close to the process. The book's title, after all, is what usually goes on the marquee. Russell Banks has had two of his novels made into respectable films, The Sweet Hereafter and Affliction. Banks broke with the custom of keeping the author off the set. He worked closely with the directors on both of those projects. I'd had a kind of crash course in filmmaking from Adam McGoyan and Paul Schrader, both of whom drew me into the process from the first step. And from them, I, I saw how a good movie can be made. And then I thought, you know, this, this could be fun. I could get involved in this uh, on different levels uh, as a writer, certainly. I mean, as a screenwriter, but also as a producer, too. So something that uh, William Kennedy told me early on that, um, you know, if I cared about what ended up on the screen, then I would have to be willing to be attached to the project as a producer and insist on script approval and director approval and major casting approval. And he said, well, of course, if you do that, it's highly unlikely anyone will buy the option, but there's a possibility somewhere along the line someone will. After the success of The Sweet Hereafter and Affliction, in fact, now it's possible for me to do that. So I've kept myself attached now as a producer to each of the um, attempts to adapt uh, novels of mine since then. Before Empire Falls became a movie, Richard Russo had already begun screenwriting. After his informal collaboration on the script of Nobody's Fool, he wrote Twilight, a detective film starring Paul Newman. For Richard Russo, learning to write for the screen meant recognizing that the screenplay is a legitimate work of fiction, but it's also really a blueprint, a minimal frame that supports the movie that's made from it. I think what I admire most in a really good script is its tightness. There's almost a kind of haiku quality to it. I go back to carpentry. One summer when I was on summer vacation, I worked with a bunch of carpenters, and one of the things that they always impressed upon me was that you would never use two nails if one would do. I think the novel is a very demanding, but it's also a very forgiving form. Screenplays are not as forgiving in anything you do twice, even if you don't realize you've done it twice. Later on, you're going to have to find out what that thing is that you've done twice, where you've used two nails or, God forbid, three nails. 
And you've got to go back and you've got to do it once and, and have the confidence to know that it's done, that it will hold, and that it is sufficient. But not all writers accord the screenplay the same esteem that they hold for the novel. John Irving, who's written half a dozen scripts, has his own take on the screenplay as a work of construction. Writing a screenplay, to me, is not really writing at all. There's no language in it. Uh, dialogue doesn't count as language, in, in my view. And when you're adapting your own novel, the dialogue is one of the things that changes least of all. There is no equivalent in, in a screenplay for whatever your writer's voice is, for whatever that tone of voice that gives a novel its momentum is. Um, that's entirely in the hands of the director, in the hands of the cinematographer, it's almost as if what you're doing is putting up the scaffolding for a building that someone else is going to make. There's a feeling among writers now that the best way to film a novel is to make a 10-part miniseries. But feature film adaptations still compress a novel into two hours or less. Think of the novel Six Days of the Condor. The film became Three Days of the Condor. The film of Russo's Empire Falls runs more than three hours. Even at that length, it's a drastic compression of more than 400 pages. It's the rare novelist who wants to cannibalize his own book or who can do it convincingly, says Richard Russo. I'm, you know, fairly ruthless as a screenwriter and not just with other people's work, but with my own. And once you get through your skull that you're not making the novel in a new way, but what you're making is a movie, you can actually compress fairly easily if you're willing to do the kinds of things that are, you know, part and parcel of your job. For instance, some of your favorite parts of the novel just have no business in the screenplay. For Paul Newman, who produced Empire Falls, the priority was saving as much of the novel as he could. That meant having the film run longer than most and giving it rhythms that suited the sweeping story of Russo's original. I read the book and was fascinated the idea of putting it without truncating the story on film. There was a lot of interest for people just to do it as a two-hour film, but I, I really felt the book would suffer if it was done that way. So we got to HBO, and they showed a great deal of interest in it, and also told us that we could do it at whatever length it was required to be faithful to the book. That was my chief interest. I guess I'm going to have to start locking my car, aren't I? Hiya. How come you're hotwiring my car, old man? Fell down the key, taught me. I didn't ask how, Dad. I asked why. I thought you was on vacation. If I'd known you was back, I would have asked. Where's your car? Went down to Callahan's one night last week. When I come out, it was gone. Somebody stole that old beater? Not exactly. I must have forgot to set the emergency brake. Made it all the way to the river. Get out of here. Come on. Paul Newman and Ed Harris in Empire Falls. I think that the greatest strength of this particular work is that we had, we had the luxury of time to investigate. And today, when everything is quick shots and fast cuts and lickety-split and the acceleration of change and everything, just to have the luxury to examine these characters and allow them to live these moments as they would occur in life 
was, as I say, a great luxury, not just for the actors, but I hope for the audience. In Empire Falls, the character of Newman's daughter-in-law, Janine, is played by Helen Hunt. She says the script and the novel were just the starting point for building her character. I usually, when I'm reading, and in this case it was when I read the screenplay and the book, have a, a blank piece of paper or a blank notebook and a pen, and you write down anything that comes to you, things about her that are like me, things about her that are like someone I know, some painting you saw that reminds you of what she might look like, somebody you once met who talked like she did, an idea to work on an accent or not, and you're just very careful not to discount any random strange thought because very often one of those random thoughts turns into something key that helps you feel comfortable playing the part. Hunt's character, Janine, has just left her husband after almost 20 years for a more virile companion. Once shooting began, Hunt was in a position to save some of her character from the cutting room floor. There's a scene in the film between my character and Ed Harris's character after I've gotten married where the two of them dance together and speak. I, I sort of couldn't believe that that didn't make it into the movie and made a big pitch for it, which they eventually must have agreed with because it ended up in the film. There was something very specific about this character written in the book that I hope is clear in the movie. In the book, he says very explicitly that she's 40 years old and just had her first orgasm and survived her entire marriage since high school, having never had one. And I thought, well, if, if that's a piece of this character waiting to be mined, I want to use it. I knew that she needed to be sort of fierce and out there, and what better way than that? You're probably going to think this is crazy. You and me go on our separated ways. I'm kind of worried about you. Why? Don't take this the wrong way. It's good you're going for it. You be careful of that woman. I'm just going after what I want. Isn't that what you've been asking me to do for 20 years? Terrific. I get remarried and now you decide to listen to me? Empire Falls author and screenwriter Richard Russo. Not many writers get this opportunity, but I had, you know, Ed Harris and Helen Hunt coming up to me saying, you know, my favorite part of the novel was, was this. Can, is there any way that this scene can be put back in? The reason that I took this role was to be able to say this line. You've got to get it back in there. Estelle Parsons plays Helen Hunt's mother, who tends bar in town. I'm not a person who would say, I don't like this script, I'm going to ad lib. But in this case, it was Richard Russo's screenplay, Richard Russo book. And so we would say, hey, in this scene, I had a scene in the bar with Helen, who played my daughter, Helen Hunt. We had an interesting scene in the bar. And I felt that some of the dialogue in the book fit us better than what we had in the screenplay in terms of in the bar shooting and so on, the whole picture. And so we were able to use that, and that was very wonderful, of course. I lost 50 pounds. I feel good about myself for the first time in my whole damn life. And you're not going to bring me down either, so don't even try. I am not trying to bring you down, little girl. It's a mother's duty to point out when her child's acting dumber than usual. I mean, trading in a perfectly good man like Miles or strutting Rooster like Walt Normal simply defies imagination. And what? Maybe one day I'll pack it all in like you, but not today. People can change, and I'm changing. You're not changing, Janine. You're just losing weight. 
ultimately the actors were involved in their own adaptation, letting go of the book and performing. Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is trapped in the town's wealthiest family. He's an enigma, you know what I mean? He's mythic, but he is also you know, very tangible and grounded in the fact that he was this man at a certain time, very powerful, very wealthy man, educated and uh, kind of worldly wise and all these things. But ultimately in the movie, in the story, he's kind of this enigma, he's this mythic character, he's a ghost, you know? And so that combination of things is very interesting. Uh, it wasn't your typical, it's a wonderful life type of character. It is really complex because it's told through a smoky mirror his story. It's told through memory, which is never the truth. You know, it's memory. So I found that fascinating. What's the matter, your mom? She's an awfully nice person, you know. I know. Everybody deserves a chance to be happy, don't you think? She is happy. And there comes a time in your life when you realize that if you don't take the opportunity, you won't ever get another. She is happy. I guess I was talking about me. Casting performers like Hoffman, Parsons, or Helen Hunt is part of the adaptation process. Selecting the actor that embodies a character on the screen can end up being as crucial as deciding what parts of the novel stay in the picture. Historian David Thompson says it's always been like that with film. In Empire Falls, in Mike Nichols' adaptation of the political satire Primary Colors, or in the much-publicized search for a screen Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. I think Primary Colors turned out very well, and in part that's, I think, Mike Nichols' cleverness. And also it was very, very well cast. I think Travolta as the Clinton-esque figure was inspired piece of casting. Casting is tremendously important because if you can find an actor or an actress who really gets a great character, you're halfway home. I do think that all the fuss about who was going to play Scarlet was actually well-placed because if you get someone who is right for Scarlet in the minds of most readers of the book, then I think scenes, whole scenes, are going to start functioning and working where they wouldn't if you had an actress who was not right. Yet, as Julie Solomon points out, casting can work for and against a movie, especially when the studio reaches for the biggest marquee names. I bet almost every serious movie that gets made, there's probably two sets of casts. One is the cast of the actors who you think would be perfect to play the part in a book, the person who you would imagine. And most of those actors are probably not big movie stars. They're probably character actors who you, who's, they're the kind of people, oh, I know their face, but I don't know who they're, what, I can't remember their names. Well, none of them are going to get the parts. They may get the secondary parts or the third parts, but they're not going to get the lead. So then you have the movie stars, and those are the people that people want to see. And so the first compromise starts there. In Empire Falls, the cast was assembled by director Fred Skepsi. I think uh, half a director's job is done in casting, quite frankly. You need to cast somebody who is going to understand the person, going to understand the place she comes from and, and what might have happened to her, and then have the ability to do the research necessary to fill in the gaps that they don't know, and then give themselves over to it and completely become the character. And, um, you know, I think Helen did that. 
understand us. I mean, I told you every single thing you did that pissed me off during the whole 20 years, right? That's true, you well, did. Here I am, getting ready to marry somebody else, and you still haven't told me why you didn't love me. I mean, is that fair? You took up with Walt, Jim. Oh, sure. Throw that in my face. What? No, it's not fair, and you know it. Helen Hunt and Ed Harris in Empire Falls. Coming up, authors see their work on screen in the flesh as actors play the characters they spent years imagining. I'm David Darcy. This is Independent Minds. This is Independent Minds. Casting can also be the point when an author sees that a film won't match his vision of his story or his characters. When director Ang Lee cast The Ice Storm, some of his choices dismayed novelist Rick Moody. I did have ideas about how the characters were supposed to look. For example, I had long been lobbying for Claire Danes for the Christina Ricci character because in the book she's meant to be a blonde. And I was disappointed at first when I heard that Christina Ricci had been cast. And to the extent that you get attached to these kinds of notions, oh, it should be this actor, it should be that actor, you're going to end up being miserable. you got to let go of that stuff. And to that extent that I did, I was so pleasantly surprised because the Christina Ricci performance is outrageously good, you know. So, you know, I was just wrong. How are the parental units functioning these days? Dad's doing his up-with-people routine. Mom really hasn't been saying much. I don't know. Dad seems a little weird, you know? Nervous? Can't wait till Mom finally opens her mouth. Like casting, finding the right visual metaphor for a story's conflict translates the language of the page to the language of the screen. Fred Skepsey had adapted Thomas Keneally's novel The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith 30 years before he directed Empire Falls. Working with that novel set in rural Australia... He had to reduce pages of description to gestures by an actor in a crucial scene. When Jimmy Blacksmith was waiting outside the house, because he wasn't allowed in the house of the farmers who had employed him, but his wife was in there having a baby. But all the other men went in the house, and uh, he's standing outside, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. And then he hears the baby cry from inside, and he stands up, and in pure instinct slams a bare foot into the ground and then does it again and then does one foot and the other foot and it's actually like an aboriginal birth dance that he's doing it's strictly visual and it says more than absolutely anything else could say about him and about the situation 
In Empire Falls, a key metaphor recurs in scenes where the central character, Miles Roby, played by Ed Harris, struggles to climb a ladder to paint the town church. Miles tries but never gets near the top. Empire Falls director, Fred Skepsy. The first time you're seeing him having difficulty climbing up the ladder, we've intercut the memory because he's just been affected by comments uh, that, you know, his boss, Mrs. Whiting, made. You return to Martha's Vineyard every summer, don't you? He's hearing that while he's struggling with the height of the ladder, uh, and he's remembering it as well, and it's upsetting him so that because of that, I think you connect that um, it isn't just about the ladder, It's about him being free enough to let go and move on. For Richard Russo, thinking in images was one thing he had to learn to turn a novel into a screenplay that could be filmed. It's just not my strong suit as a writer. I tend to put characters in motion and I I let them reveal themselves by what they say and what they do. And I have to really, really slow down and concentrate on those painterly aspects of filmmaking. And... I have been incredibly fortunate in working with Fred on this movie and Robert Benton on uh, Nobody's Fool because they have that painterly eye that I just have to train myself not to forget about it. But from the moment that Fred came on board, this thing became visually a different movie. It's just, um, it's our grammar. You know, this great grammar in novels, which is essential to how the work is received. It's our grammar. And here's how an actor sees that process. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Film lives an image. You know what I mean? Books live in this description of image, description of life, you know, description of the inner workings of humanity and the outer workings and the physical the surroundings you live in. And a film's going to shoot that. It's not going to tell you that. It's going to shoot it. You're going to see it. And so you can't be acting the book. I can't be acting every word of description of the book. I actually have to get inside it and illuminate, hopefully, what the book gets you to understand by the words it uses, I will get you to understand that by how you perceive me on that screen and on the celluloid, you know. That's a different thing. So you have to cross over to another way, another medium. Another acting's not writing. It's a different thing. So, like, you can derive stuff from the book that'll help you, but eventually you got to, like, let it go. It can't be a carbon copy. That's just not interesting. It's got to be another piece of work. It's got to be, like, when it's based on or inspired by, that's what it means. It's something inspired another piece of work. John Irving is writing novels, too, and screenplays. He's also become involved in the editing of the movies he writes. He's got a lot more passion for that than for writing scripts. That's the part of a movie I love best. I certainly like it better than writing screenplays. Then you can be a novelist again. You have all this wealth of detail, and you're picking what you're going to use and what you're not going to use. You're picking that angle, you're picking that line of dialogue, and whether you're going to use it as voiceover to bleed into a new scene, or whether you're going to take a line of dialogue and look at a character who's not speaking that dialogue whether that's more effective than looking at the character who's actually speaking the line. I love that stuff. That stuff is fascinating. But some critics look at the final product, a film of a novel, 
and say it's wrong to think that the film will ever measure up. David Thompson. The spirit of a book, it seems to me, is essentially in the words and it's in the style and it's in the experience of reading. Those things you are throwing out altogether. It's never, I think, truly a matter of translation. It's taking one thing and doing it again in a a different form. And I don't think it's actually that much more far-fetched than saying, well, there's a statue, let's make a, a ballet out of it. Critic Julie Solomon. It's not going to be the same experience. You know, I mean, when you read a book, you're lost inside another world, and you have a visualization of it. I mean, I was just reading The Yearling, which is such an interesting book to go back and revisit now with my son, and I wanted just to show him the little woodcut drawings. No, he said, I don't want to see those drawings. He said, it'll interfere with my idea of what the characters look like. A writer like Rick Moody never expected a finished film to give audiences the experience of reading, but the movie did bring the story and the characters of his novel to an audience that won't ever open the book. The metaphor that I used when I was talking a lot about the ice storm is that adaptation is like translating poetry. Like when you try to translate Homer from Greek to contemporary English, you know, a ton gets lost and you come up with a completely different animal. And yet, who wouldn't want to read the English version of it? You're not going to really know exactly what it's about, but you're going to get something. That's what this adaptation process is like. You're never going to get the book, so quit asking for the book. You know, it can't be done. The book is the book. The movie is a completely different animal. And yet, if you're a contemporary writer right now, you can't help but want to go through this process on the off chance that it'll be a felicitous outcome, because that's your only opportunity to be in the center of the culture. In fact, almost any movie will bring new readers to the original novel. And that, says novelist Russell Banks, can't be all bad. Especially if the novel has sort of been published and had its uh, day, in a sense, and now just exists in a paperback and occasionally taught in a few college courses somewhere. Suddenly there's a film of it, and everybody recognizes the cover, has a picture of Nick Nolte on it or something like that, and, and it does boost sales. In the film of Affliction, Nick Nolte plays a part-time New Hampshire cop on the trail of what looks like a murder. Where do I get shot? In chest. No, I mean, what about? I'm about half a mile in along the old lumber road. Well, the old lumber road, huh? It's a steep climb. You bring them up yourself? Ambulance guys lugged them up. You stayed away? Yeah. Where'd you get that blood? What blood? On your sleeve. An awful lot of people tell me that they read the novel after they saw the film because they liked the film and the tone of the film, and they wanted more of that. And you can't get more of that from the film. You have to go to the novel. Russell Banks has another novel that will soon be a film, Cloud Splitter, a fictional account of the life of the abolitionist John Brown, who was hanged after he led a rebellion in 1859. Richard Russo expects Empire Falls to bring a new audience to his books. When Nobody's Fool came out, that book suddenly became a bestseller that, of course, it had never been. And because it was a good movie, it introduced my work to many people that otherwise wouldn't have looked at it. And so, and, and it wasn't just Nobody's Fool. You didn't get where you are by doing any work. You got where you are because your daddy gave it to you. 
And he drove himself into an early grave so you could piss it away on ski trips and sports cars. Skiing in two hey, years, look, Personally, I don't give a goddamn whether you go broke, which you probably will. But before you do, you're gonna pay me what I'm you owe. I'm not gonna so pay you. Me before I you don't owe you a damn cent. Okay. I come through that goddamn door. I'm gonna grab you by your pinhead and I'm gonna throw you out the window. Novelists, even those who've made the successful transition to the screen, almost always go back to their books, where they have an autonomy that few filmmakers will ever enjoy. Movies bring them the mass audience. Almost every novelist will admit that he or she wants that, too. But for these writers, movies are really just a break from the big picture. John Irving. There's no risk like having total responsibility for something. So from my point of view, as a screenwriter, if I write a good screenplay and other people mess it up, well, it's not my fault. If I'm writing a novel, only I can mess it up. If there's something that's wrong with it, I have to take it full on the nose, you know. People have asked me, now that I've been involved with some films, if I'm interested in directing, I always say, well, when I feel like being a director, I write a novel. Richard Russo is also now at work adapting another novel, The Ice Harvest by Scott Phillips, with Russo's friend Robert Benton signed on to direct. Russo says screenwriting refuels his commitment to writing his own novels and rebuilds his stamina for doing it. I think that the reason that I continue to write screenplays, aside from the money and the collaboration and the fact that it's not quite as lonely work, is that there's some way in which the two things are feeding off each other. The screenwriting is fun, but when I come back to the novel and it's, for me, somewhat greater demands, I feel that my batteries are charged a little bit more. And when I write nothing but dialogue... In screenplay for a few months, I come back to the other stuff, which is difficult, but now I come back looking forward to it. I get to say to myself, all right, now I get to write long passages of narration in which I will describe what people look like and how they, beha- how they behave and where they live and what they think about the first thing when they wake up in the morning. And those things become welcome. For Independent Minds, I'm David Darcy. Richard Russo's Empire Falls airs on HBO in two parts, May 28th and 29th, this Memorial Day weekend. Independent Minds' Richard Russo is a Murray Street production, written and hosted by David Darcy, edited and produced by Ben Shapiro, with Steve Rath, Matthew D. Payne, and Simon Rentner. Executive producer is Matthew Glass. Recordings were made by the Argo Network, Carnegie Hall Recording Studio, Adam Aylington, David Gorin, Patrick Deaver, The Radio Foundation, Maine Public Radio, WNYC New York, and KQED San Francisco. Our thanks to Three-Legged Cat, Flash Rosenberg, WNYC's Melissa Egan, and The Leonard Lopate Show. Find out more about Independent Minds at murraystreet.com slash richardrusso.htm. Funds for Independent Minds come from HBO Films. There's more about their work at hbo.com films. Our program contains copyrighted material, including the original musical score from Empire Falls, composed by Paul Grabowski and published by TL Music Publishing, and clips from 20th Century Fox, The Ice Storm, and Garden State, from Largo Entertainment, Affliction, Paramount Pictures, Nobody's Fool, Buena Vista Home Entertainment, The Cider House Rules, New Line Cinema, The Sweet Hereafter, Warner Brothers, The Bonfire of the Vanities, 
Art House Productions Limited, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, Columbia TriStar, 310 to Yuma, MGM and Turner Entertainment Company, Gone with the Wind, Buena Vista Entertainment, Jackie Brown, WNYC, New York Public Radio, John Updike, and HBO Films, Empire Falls. <laughs>